0: Welcome to the Replay Value Podcast, where we deep dive into the movies we all love to watch over and over again. I'm Phil, joined by my brother from the same mother, our co host on the West Coast, Warren.
1: What's up, bro? In our mid season classic episode, we're going to talk about the iconic science fiction masterpiece, Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. A plot of this film, following the discovery of an alien monolith on the moon, mankind sets off on a voyage to Jupiter with a sentient supercomputer to investigate the monolith's origins.
0: I do want to start out by saying that, uh, given that it is a mid-season classic, it, it, the film itself was a little before our time. This was passed down, the love of this film was passed down by, uh, by our dad, uh, who introduced us to this movie? Probably too young of an age, we didn't really get it. We're just yeah, like,
1: yeah, why that's are there fair.
0: monkeys beating bones? I don't get, I don't understand. But uh, there was such a deep rooted love of this film uh, in our dad uh, that he. It's one of those where I can't wait to pass it on to my kids. I actually watched it prepping for this episode. I've watched it with my four year old, and, uh, and you know, of course, way too young, doesn't get it. He liked the monkey part with the apes and everything. But, yeah. Uh, it just—it's it, something that's ingrained in us. It's such—it's a, a wonderful film and, and one I'm happy to, that we're covering in this in this this episode.
1: Yeah, moving into the fabric of our culture, but it, it, for a different generation, this had a very high replay value. I mean, our, I remember our dad telling me, like when it opened as a kid, he went every day for the first week it opened. He went and saw it seven times. Like that's what this movie meant to so many different people when it came out. And when you talk about this film, it all starts with the master filmmaker Stanley Kubrick. This was his eighth feature film of the 13 that he ended up directing. Before this, Paths of Glory in 57, Spartacus in 60, Lolita in 62, but it was Dr. Strangelove that elevated him to a a top-tier director in Hollywood um, where he had Carte Blanche. Uh, He could make any movie he wanted, and... He was a major director. I mean, he got to a point where the pressure that he had following Dr. Strangelove was kind of like, you know, Tarantino following Pulp Fiction. It's his reputation hung on every shot and he ultimately ended up delivering the goods, but his career was in a, a, a great place after Strangelove.
0: Yeah, it's, it's one of those uh, situations that, you know, I'm sure every director too aspires to where you can do a passion project or if you're interested in something, you can do the research and flesh it out. So Coming off Dr. Strangelove, he decided he wanted to do something with space and with extraterrestrial life, uh, but he, he didn't like where the genre was at, um, so he wanted to draw from more, I guess you would say, realistic, as realistic as it could be, one that delivered on screen and that could be backed up by, quote-unquote, the science as well as we knew it for the time. So he was very much in a position where he could do that, where he's like, I, I want to go as... Mm-hmm different direction from Dr. Strangelove as I can. Uh, and there wasn't anything out there as far as a screenplay or a book that he could draw that from. So he had to do his own research and almost develop it himself.
1: Well, it was, you know, you, you talk about what his interests were after Strangelove. It, it was the a lot of very deep and profound questions about our existence, the possibility of extraterrestrial life, the 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 very presence of the universe, the evolution of technology. I mean, he 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 set out to make a science fiction masterpiece. I mean, that's what Kubrick did. He was he's a genre director and mission accomplished. I mean, when he tackled a genre, he mastered it and the previous Kubrick film we did, The Shining. I mean, that's considered a horror masterpiece, and this is considered a science fiction masterpiece. So this is what Kubrick uh, did time and time again. Uh, but I think it's fair to say people consider 2001 to be his his magnum opus.
0: I have a hard time not relating it to uh, like things to to music or you know sports kind of comparisons. Uh, and I, I look at Kubrick as like he's like the Beatles of film directors. You know, the Beatles were great because they weren't just good in one genre. They're just like, you know what? I'm going to experiment. I'm going to do this, and I'm going to crush it, and I'm going to be better than everybody else that's done it, and I'm going to reinvent this genre that I just wanted to try. And that's what Kubrick was great at doing.
1: That's what's so great, but it's, it wasn't some artsy, fartsy version of the genre. They actually were truthful and yes. honored the genre, but then elevated the genre and ultimately transcended the genre and it would have subgenres within those genres. And uh, again, you can't talk about that without that mentioning QT, who, you know, our dad's favorite director was Stanley Kubrick. My favorite director is Quentin Tarantino. And they're, they're different filmmakers, but there are some similarities, uh, you know. Tarantino is an auteur. He writes and directs. Uh, Kubrick would write, but he would generally adapt his stories. He he never wrote an an original script. But I have to mention this. Of the two Kubrick films we're going to have ended up doing after this episode, of the 13 films he's made, these are the only two Kubrick films, The Shining in 2001, to have sequels.
0: Oh, that's oh yeah, that's a good point. I, and and the the former uh, just fairly recently with Doctor Sleep, yeah,
1: which he had no involvement in either. Of course one, not. But yeah,
0: yeah. But I mean, just the the fact that that IP was there, they were that groundbreaking. Where it's like there's more to hash out here. We there's something else that can be discovered within this.
1: It, you know, when you talk about the concept of this film, and and this is a unique circumstance where the novel and the film of the same name uh, were developed concurrently. With the novel's publication coming after the film's theatrical release, which the original idea was to focus on the novel, then write the screenplay.
0: Yeah, and that that's rare, especially in the movies we've talked about. Typically, it's some sort of a real life inspiration or a, a hot novel that's uh, you know is, is being opted optioned into a movie that gets passed around. Um, so. As many people know now, the novel uh, was written by Arthur C. Clarke, and, and before I actually researched the film for this episode, I thought that that the novel 2001 preceded the film and that it was a point of inspiration for Kubrick. I didn't really ever mm-hmm. dig into it; It's just a it's just an assumption that I made based mm-hmm. upon how
1: because that's generally the that's case. How with most movies the, are made, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah.
0: that's what the the the, the 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 process that they typically no one opts. It at the you know afterwards, or
1: maybe the only time it comes after when it's a novelization of the film itself, or a
0: novelization, correct? But as far as it being yeah. done concurrently, I mean, so Arthur C. Clarke and and Kubrick, they worked very closely on this. Um, they were connected by a mutual friend uh, that you know, Clark was considered somewhat of a hermit, uh, and Kubrick, who wanted to, he'd read some Clark short stories, and rather than pick one to start with, he had gone through a lot of them and said, kind of a piece picked. I I kind of think of it the way that Christopher Nolan did for the Dark Knight, his Dark Knight trilogy. He looked at these great, iconic Batman comics, and he's like, I want to use this, I want to use that. And that's what he did with Arthur Arthur C. Clark's uh, short stories. But in in a sense, they worked together over four years uh, to create the 2001 Space Odyssey, the story as we know it. Which did exist uh, differently on the screen than in the book, but the the the, the thought process as far as developing developing it at the same time was there.
1: Clark had given Kubrick uh, short like six short stories, and and Kubrick selected the Sentinel as the source material for the movie. And they spent I, I they like were essentially hibernated for six months. I mean, they developed it over four years, but there were six months where they were just like in the rabbit hole uh, developing this this script, uh, reading uh, science books, watching science fiction films, brainstorming ideas. Uh, You know, Kubrick ultimately rolled some of Clark's short stories uh, with his ideas all into this picture. Uh, And of all the movies uh, 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 that they watched, one that had a huge influence was the 1955's Conquest of Space. But the novel 2001 w- was itself was based on a series of, of short stories that Clark had written many years earlier, like I just mentioned, The Sentinel, published in 1951, The Sentinel of Eternity, and Encounter the Dawn, which is where aliens influence primitive ancestors and ultra human history.
0: Yeah, I mean, that was like, the, I guess, it it's almost does it a disservice to say that that's where the idea came from were those short stories. I mean, yes, that was like maybe the kernel of the idea, but it was developed so much more thoroughly with Kubrick and Clark, that partnership. And and like you said, originally, uh, the novel was going to come out first and they were going to bill it. The novel as, you know, Arthur C. Clark and Stanley Kubrick put Clark's name first. And then on the screenplay, uh, they were going to put Stanley Kubrick and Arthur C. Clark to kind of defer to their own professions and their expertise in the end, though, uh, due to some a little bit of falling out delays with the movie getting made. The only name on the novel is Arthur C. Clarke's, which was uh, different than how they originally planned.
1: Couldn't quite find what the true story is on that. Maybe we may never know why that ended up happening that way. But Arthur C. Clarke was uh, pleased with the movie. Um, And talking about other influences, you have to mention the 29-minute film universe, yes. which provided visual inspiration uh, to Stanley Kubrick. He ended up hiring uh, Wally Gentleman uh, for the visual effects from that. Um, Not the only hire saw that he made. To the, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he. I mean, yeah, Kubrick, uh, game recognizes game. If he saw someone that was great, he immediately put him on the payroll and, and, and wanted to have him on the picture. Uh, he did that when he saw uh, To the Moon and Beyond at the 1964 New York World Fair, which most people nowadays – Best they know the World Fair from is what was that Iron Man? 2, uh, I, read, when I think had, it was like, a yeah. Modern day world, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but the, he ended up hiring uh, Graphic Films who uh, produced that movie uh, for for two thousand one. So uh, Kubrick always uh, would delegate to, to to the best in the field.
0: It came from two points of view. One is that uh, the you know the animated short universe, which was I think put out by NASA. One of the people that I was I was thinking you were going to mention was the narrator Douglas Rain liked his voice so much mm-hmm. that that is who became the voice of how uh, so from 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 that side of it he wanted to focus on the realism and focus on getting it right you know so many films you have to think in the in the 50s and 60s Sci-fi films where were like cheesy fifty foot ant, you know that 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 stuff there.
1: Yeah, it was the monsters and sex science fiction B movies. Right. Uh, you know, you, you and they're kind of iconic nowadays. You know, th- those horror movie posters uh, definitely have a, a special place uh, uh, in cinema history. But Kubrick has eschewed all fantasy elements, as you said. He wanted a realistic approach, and we've seen that impact on filmmakers to this day. I mean, Christopher Nolan, anybody? I mean, he's really grounded a lot of his films in that same approach. And you look at Watch Interstellar. That is a love letter to 2001 uh, and and, and Kubrick's work in the movie. But, uh, you know, a a lot of what had been popularized in space movies up to that point with aliens, monsters uh, in space, Uh, Kubrick broke all the tropes.
0: So you also have to think about where Kubrick was. He hadn't done a whole lot with special effects, so he had a lot. He wanted to, you know, surround himself with people that knew what they were doing, that had experience uh, he was heavily inspired by Japanese uh, tokusatsu films, which translates to special filming. They were known for sci-fi mm. horror, um, so he wanted to pull those elements in, but again, ground them in the realistic side and do something uh, that that I guess honored the science uh, of space of, of of science fiction rather than it being just yeah, well, the fantasy that's, that's, element.
1: That, yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, the thematic importance of the movie is, you know, man's relationship with the universe. And Kubrick focused on the movie being a visual visceral experience which is why the, the the special effects which we'll talk about here shortly are, are so pivotal in the film and play such a big uh you know a paramount part of why the movie's so successful and why it works so well uh you know Kubrick was involved in every single department of production his obsession for perfection uh and the pursuit of it when he makes a movie is rather legendary we all have heard of oh yeah
0: it. Uh, yes I, <laughs> everything anyone's familiar with Q- Kubrick probably knows that bullet point about him above any others.
1: Now, Kubrick announced the film uh, uh, with a press release on February 23rd, 1965, announcing this is a Cinerama film titled Journey Beyond the Stars.
0: Which is, you know, you hear that you're like, compared to 2001, it's just like, if you were to hear that movie now, you'd be like, what a cheesy name that just, that doesn't sound like, I mean, yes, it's it's more... It's just too pompous of a name. It, it thinks it's too, I don't know. It just, it, it doesn't age well, I guess. A couple other uh, honorable mentions, I guess you could say, for names before they... Well, ti-
1: other titles in contention? Other titles,
0: yeah. Uh, was uh, How the Solar System Was Won, uh, Universe, <laughs> which... How
1: the West Was Won, that's borrowing from John Ford right sure. there. Keep going. Uh,
0: well, he was also considering to call it Universe, which would have pulled from the yeah, animated Yeah, I shirt. saw that, yeah. Uh, Tunnel to the Stars, which, you know... It seems like they just had a chalkboard and were like, something with stars, journey beyond the stars, tunnel of the stars. And that was probably, you know, second or third place. And then hmm. uh, Planetfall, uh, which, you know, honestly just um, sounds like a, uh, a terrible mid-90s uh, science fiction f- uh,
1: film. I, don't, I, I think of Battlefield Earth, yeah, you know. So, nine, <laughs> well, that was like <laughs> early 2000s, Awful. Yeah. The, the title just, that title screams bomb. This summer, um, Planetfall. It really does. Um <laughs> And not only did they end up changing the title, there were a lot of changes made with the screenplay itself. The novel was based on a lot of the earlier drafts of the screenplay, so ultimately there's a lot of differences with the finished novel and the finished film. I think the biggest overall difference I can point out where things are mystified in the movie, they are explained in exquisite detail in the novel.
0: Which is, I think, the nature of books. You're going to get more explanation uh, because you don't have a visual medium to work with. The visual medium is someone's imagination. Your your medium is words. It's the page. Um, so I, that is inherent in books. That's not a knock on Arthur C. Clark, uh, but it, it was the intent of Kubrick to make it more about symbolism and what you saw mm-hmm. more driven by visuals, less dialogue. Whereas you don't, you can't do that in a book. You can't just have a blank page.
1: Yeah. Uh, and other differences, uh, uh, and they weren't really creative. It was mostly uh, financial or logistical. Um, uh, although the, there is a five-year age difference with Hal, so I, I think maybe that was just something that changed through the drafts. Um, uh, but the appearance of the monolith is completely different in the novel. It is a transparent crystal, which Kubert didn't like that because he thought it made people think of the pyramids, and so they ended up going. And he didn't like how the, the glass photographed either. So that's yeah, why I they didn't also think it filmed very black. well,
0: is what I'd read. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, in the film, the mission is to Jupiter. In the novel, the mission is to Saturn. Uh, Douglas Trumbell, the VFX supervisor, couldn't perfect Saturn's rings, so Kubrick kind of settled Jupiter.
0: It's one of those things, if it were made today, yeah, absolutely, would be uh, would be Saturn. Yeah, of course. One difference I came across, and a pretty big one, in the ending of the book, the star child returns to Earth and destroys all the satellites that are carrying nuclear weapons. But Kubrick I, was probably one of the first things he cut because he didn't he wanted to step away from Dr. Strangelove. And too felt, similar like, to Strangelove. Too yeah. similar, yeah. yeah
1: Involving, yeah. you know, n- nuclear warheads being the the climactic ending of your movie.
0: Sure, right,
1: yeah. Uh, another big difference was the, and it had a lot of differences within this, was the showdown with Hal, uh, you know, why they decide to disconnect Hal, how Hal kills Poole, uh, the lip read, that wasn't in the book. That's that's That was Kubrick's idea uh, with the movie, which now computer, Clark, actually, there's a big argument about that. Uh, that's one of the few creative differences they had. Clark didn't like it. Thought it wasn't uh, plausible, but then it found out that computers have learned how to lip read or are <laughs> being developed. So wow. uh, he, he's pointed out in later interviews that Kubrick was right to do that. But the 2010 sequel film and the sequel novels that were uh, uh, their uh, the, the canon that was adapted is the movie's canon. So if you go read the sequels or watch the movie, it follows up the 2001 film, not the novel.
0: No, oh, okay, it makes
1: a lot of sense though because that's probably what most people. They know the movie. They don't know the book.
0: Right. Because if you're going to build that canon and people go in, they may be only interested in reading 2010 or 2060 or three, you know, the other books because of what they know from the movie 2001 and that that was, you know, they're they're going to have the expectation of that knowledge that they've learned from the movie, not from the book version. So that's a smart Mm -hmm. play by Clark to, to, to do that. Yeah. Uh, one expo- bit of exposition that I did like about the book that I wish they would have explained a little bit better in the film is the reasoning for Hal's breakdown. It's the logic failure of him keeping the Jupiter mission and the purpose of you know finding the monolith a secret uh, from the crew, which went against uh, everything that he is designed to do. And that conflict, that inner conflict within Hal is kind of what caused that breakdown. I felt like that deserved a little bit more explanation in the film, and, and once you you kind of hear that, you're like, okay, that makes that makes sense. So I do wish that would have been included a little bit.
1: We'll talk about 2010 later, but they they you, you do learn the, a little bit more about that in the sequel film. Again, they tell you a little a lot of what was mystified in the in the first film is explained in in, in the uh, in the second. Production of the film started on December 29th, 1965 at Shepperton Studios on Stage H in the UK. They also shot at MGM British Studios uh, in England as well. Most of the live-action special effects were shot there. They shot the film in Super Panavision 70, which is actually 65mm, uh, the, the, the classic Cinerama roadshow uh, before... Uh, switching to 35 millimeter and 70 millimeter for the wide release. And they don't do that anymore. Uh, I, I got to see once upon a time in Hollywood in 70 millimeter at the Cinerama here in Hollywood. And it was fucking awesome. And I just wish more movies shot on film. And, uh, this is at the time was state of the art film technology. Uh, and they achieved the uh, aspect ratio that, that really makes the science fiction shots uh, so epic in scale.
0: I've never seen a film in 70 millimeter. I would love to do that. I'm sure it's a, it's a great experience. Um, So I think that the the key takeaway, though, is that it was deserving of it at the time, the the, the groundbreaking special effects and what he did with the filming. And I'll just give you a little stat to take away from that. I think that influences everything that you just said. There are 205 special effects shots in the film. All of the the visual effects that Kubrick created, his team created, were quote-unquote in camera. So there was no Mm -hmm. traveling mats. There were no blue screens used. Which I think if you go back and watch now with the, um, of course, the remastering, the move to high definition, this movie ages phenomenally well. Uh, other than yeah. some of the fashion elements, uh, special effects wise, man, what a great choice to do that.
1: Because there's practical shots at the heart of every shot. I mean, uh, you know, the elements are real, uh, whether it's miniatures or, you know, uh you know, a third or eighth figure life scale, uh, what you see is what you get. It is real at the center of the shot. Uh, in comparison to 205 FX shots in this film, there were 350 in the original Star Wars, uh, nine years later. And then mm-hmm. there were 2,200 FX shots in Star Wars episode three.
0: You know, of course, Star Wars, huge special effects. And that was groundbreaking cinema, blockbuster for for science fiction in a different way. But I think, you know, what you said, nine years Later was Star Wars, so 1968 to 77. So I remember when uh, when I was you know I saw an interview with Lucas and he said that for Star Wars to work, one of the most important things was that opening shot when you see the de- you see the Star Destroyer um, going after Leia's ambassadorship. It's like the audience had to buy that those were not models that that was in space, and that was hard to do in 77. Think about Kubrick, the the level of well oh,
1: fuck man. Kubrick was guessing. Dude, humanity didn't even get a picture of Earth from space until 1972. Remember the famous blue marble picture? Yeah. So Kubrick was inventing it as he went. He did a fucking great job. I mean, it, it holds up so well. So
0: he did this not almost a decade earlier almost a decade earlier. So blows my I mind. Just, the I, movie
1: actually not only did that, and not only did he nail the accuracy of what it looks like when we did see, uh, is the movie invented technology. iPads, smartwatches, TVs on the back of plane seats, that all came from this movie decades earlier, uh, those ideas. There was even an interview with Arthur C. Clarke talking about eventually people would have a, a computer in their pocket, a phone, that they everyone would have and carry with them at all times. So and that, it's that's kind of crazy I, how they nailed it.
0: Yeah, and that's what I love about uh, special effects and like, you know, technology in film. It's just like, if it's not there yet, some nerd is going to be inspired about it and create it. So, um, so that, you know, that's that's great that they were able to do that.
1: I mean, the, 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 it's fucking great. I mean, the, the, the special effects are iconic. Uh, most notably, it popularized the use of front projection with retroflective matting. And this became the gold standard for visual effects in movies until it was replaced by green screens in the 90s. Uh, this film, the special effects, as you said, it, it, they age really well, but it makes space poetic and beautiful. But it also shows the indifference of space, which makes it fucking terrifying.
0: And I, I do feel like a little bit more of explanation is needed for the front projective, uh, I mean front projection retroflective matting. I know it's like you hear that and you're like, what is that? I don't, I don't you know... So you think about like the old movies that you see where it's got you know someone sitting in a car and you can see like the video screen behind them and you can tell that it's background. Okay, this Mm -hmm. basically is a way to get around that or do it in a way that makes it more realistic. So what you do, and I'll you know watch a YouTube video of it. I guess it's gonna be you know I'll, I'll try to explain it best I can. But you shoot a scene with the projector that is at a right angle to the camera. Okay, so you think about it. It's basically in the shape of an L the camera shoots off of a, a silvered mirror uh, that's that kind of basically angles it towards the screen, and then you put the image forward uh, on top of a retro-reflective background. And so essentially what you get through that, that technique is a way to superimpose something on top of the background but make it look like it's a part of the background, much more so than the cheesy... B movie style that you were getting to kind of put a, a person over a background in the past. So it was just it, it it preceded the blue screen technology, the blue screen, green screen. That's why people don't do it anymore because it's it's easier to do back then this was very difficult to nail mm-hmm. and to get it to look good.
1: Yeah, he was on the cutting edge. He constantly showed how sophisticated and smart and how much further ahead of the game he was than everyone else, which James Cameron, you could argue, did that in a later generation with uh, his special effects. We covered one of his um, films earlier this season. Uh, and he's been a, a landmark special effects director, And but Kubrick really started that. And Kubrick was constantly just defying the... Like, how he would get what he wanted, whether it was the rotating, uh, you know, uh, set that was a, a, essentially a 30-foot Ferris wheel, uh, cost of production $750,000, but he would have this wheel rotate and the actors had to perfectly step at the right time or they would fall down. I mean, that is the, 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 the shots he was getting no one had ever seen before in film. I mean, it was truly uh, the most innovative thing anyone had seen in cinema.
0: And and, and within that, you know, that you have that zero gravity, that rotating centrifuge, it's like, well, how did they do that? It's just like, you know, you have an actor step off and like sit down next to someone that is at a completely different angle. And if it's like, how do you do that? That's all quote unquote in camera, which I mean, meaning nothing added in in post to fix it. It was through creative shooting to have uh, actors cover up the wires. Uh, have them be like kind of locked down. Uh, so the double-sided to-
1: tape with the pin on the glass. I mean, to, 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 exactly. to create the zero gravity effect. I mean, uh, again, the, the the level of mastery that Kubrick puts on display as a filmmaker is just in, er- it's in every shot and every scene. Kubrick did test humans playing aliens before deciding to abandon the idea, which we can agree was the best choice. Leave it to the audience's imagination. Course, it's been yeah. very rare where an alien has looked good on camera. It almost always <laughs> uh, hurts the movie when you see what the alien looks like.
0: Yeah, it's best to leave it to the imagination. Even today, it's still best to have that uh, that mentality.
1: Uh, Kubrick wrapped the actors September 1967, but he continued to work on all these FX shots till March 1968, making his final edits and locking the picture just days before its theatrical release.
0: Which, not surprising for Kubrick to, to, to want to... to be tweaking it up to that point but you you said he stopped in march 68 he started on the special effects shots in june 66 so it's clear i mean no wonder that the film didn't have much dialogue i mean he was really dedicated to the visual elements of this film
1: yeah, it, like I say, he's, he was heavily involved in every department, not only with the special effects, but also the design. As we said before, he hired the best people. Kubrick hired NASA employee Harry Lang, uh, who worked and was embedded in NASA, worked in there uh, to help design a lot of the gear and sets to give it that authentic NASA feel. In fact, his designs required a security clearance before Kubrick could use them. And, and that just gives you a sense that everything in the movie is coming from a real place.
0: Yeah, I'm- the only thing I would say that really uh, dates it is, of course, you know, the, the styles, the hairstyles in it, um, the, the tech a little bit, but mainly whenever you see like the furniture at the little uh, stopping point before uh, Haywood goes yep. to the moon, you know, you could say like, and, but even though those chairs, the furniture, the, the fonts that were used, Kubrick picked all of that stuff out. Uh, he was very, very involved with it, even the most minute of detail for the visual elements.
1: Yeah, even uh, shamelessly. But it does add to the fascination, the branding in the movie. You got IBM, you got Hilton, which That's are true, brands yeah. still successful today. But then you also have some that aren't successful, like Pan Am's featured a lot, and they ended up bellying up. I,
0: I do love that, though, that you get to see. It's like, because like, yeah, if that happened and there was really a stopping point where people could stay, and sleep, of course it would be you know in, in, in sponsored or bought out by a huge hotel brand. Of course it would be. So I, I did love that kind of element of, Commerce and that adds the realism mm-hmm. to it.
1: It's know? one of those situations where it does add to the fascination because it is in the future. Right. Kind of like in Back to the Future Part 2, not to put that movie on this level, but it's the same thing <laughs> oh, when you see in the future. You want to see products and brands we use today. Yeah,
0: it, 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 I guess more so adds that element of realism because it's it connects it to your the world you oh, know. Oh,
1: hey, that could happen.
0: Yeah. Got to talk about the music of the film. You knew it was coming. I I mean, iconic as much as the the visual elements were. It drives much of the first and last 30 minutes of the film where there really is zero dialogue. And as we stated before, Kubrick wanted those visuals along with the music to drive the film. Uh, But at the same time, though, there's not a lot of music in the dialogue scenes. He lets those scenes breathe and they have the weight that they do uh, so that whenever you do go to Apart with um, with the visuals, with the music, it, 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 each each part of the film has its own room to do what it's designed to do.
1: It's an innovative use of classical music that really hadn't been done before in films. Again, it's Kubrick breaking the tropes, breaking the mold, creating something unique and new and fresh. And Kubrick has proven and continued to prove that he is a master of marrying music and the the frame of, of what's on the picture together. I mean, he that, that whether and you you could see that same approach in Clockwork Orange.
0: Well, what's interesting about this film is that you know, often when you have a music, it's like okay, whether it be a uh, Hans Zimmer or John Williams, they create a, they write a score that is written solely for that film. And that was not done with 2001. It uses classical music instead, but however, I didn't know this, but before you know, looking into the movie, Kubrick had actually hired uh, a composer, uh, Alex North, who he'd worked with on Spartacus and Dr. Strangelove to create a score. And Alex North did just that. Um, but while Kubrick was working on the film, he had had kind of classical music set, like kind of pieces in as like a placeholder um, so that he could kind of get, get an idea for the scene and what he would wanted to do in it. Um, and then during post-production, he's just like, you know what? I like these classical pieces better. I'm going to use that, and I'm not going to use the score that I had Alex North write for me. North did not discover that until he saw the premiere of the film, so he's going into this. <laughs> expe-
1: I'm sorry, that's awful. That sucks. I shouldn't even laugh at that because I've been a part of stuff where I've been cut. It sucks.
0: <laughs> An actor expects, okay, not everything's going to make it in. You know, that, whatever. It, it's terrible if it's a big scene, whatnot, but or a close up. But to have your entire score uh, cut out. <laughs> Is got and you still be invited to the premiere on top of all things. I mean, goodness gracious! As long as the check didn't bounce, right? Well, here's the thing, though. His unused score did actually release in 1993. The National Philharmonic performed the score and put out a CD for it, so you could buy it. And then in 2007, which you know wasn't that long ago, I mean, over 40 years after the or almost 40 years after the film came out, uh, the original 1968 recording that Alex North did, they did release that. So you can actually hear it. Uh, and believe, believe it or not, uh, Roger Ebert, he listened to the, the original film score uh, and, and talked about um, the classical musical choice with, with that Kubrick made and said, quote, when classical music is associated with popular entertainment, the result is usually to trivialize it. I mean, who can listen to the William Tell Overture? I mean, you are, uh, without thinking of the Lone Ranger. Kubrick's film is almost unique in that it enhances the music by its association with his images.
1: Yeah. Fucking just a visual
0: symphony. It's taking something that would be cheesy if used incorrectly, but it's taking, it almost elevates the material by using it the right way. Much in the sense, let's say like narration does in a film. Um, You know, if it could be a, a storytelling crutch, but if it's used correctly, it elevates the material.
1: And we'll move on to the stars of the picture.
0: All right, Mr. DeMille,
2: I'm ready for my close-up.
1: Kubrick had casted, it's the eighth of his 13 films, but he had casted stars up to this point. Kirk Douglas twice, Peter Sellers twice, James Mason. Uh, this is his first uh, big film without any stars. In a movie about stars, <laughs> there aren't any. <laughs> Well, there are already
0: too many. I mean, they're traveling through space. You know, you have got enough. You
1: know? <laughs> okay, okay. And we'll start at the top of the call sheet with Keir Dolia as Doctor Dave Bowman. This was his ninth movie. This was a breakout role for him. I mean, up to this point, he was known for his pale blue eyes, kind of like uh, uh, Cillian Murphy. Uh, you know,
0: Killian Murphy. His... Don't be pers- Don't be yeah. Don't be distracted by the sea. It's Killian Murphy.
1: Killian Murphy. Uh, the 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 sea is silent. Uh. No, it's not. Um, it's just pronounced differently. Uh, okay. I was gonna do Django. I was trying to do my Django. Oh, okay, um, I got you. All
0: right.
1: Yeah, but before this, he had twenty TV credits, and he, like I said, he had done eight movies. After this, he reprised his role in 2010. The sequel, uh, he was in a castle. Hey, I was on that uh, Amazon's Hunters most recently. Yeah, and he even appeared in uh, uh, Robert De Niro's The Good Shepherd back in 2006
0: yeah so still working today, and I actually just started watching Hunters. uh It's a really great show. I haven't got to the episode i get uh, he's in at least if if I have I haven't recognized him yet uh so I was uh pleasantly surprised that uh, to see that he is still working uh in into his eighties still uh, still going strong yeah still going strong and uh and in the show- shows that I watch nonetheless because most of most association is with uh two thousand one
1: well that's all the actors in this movie are most known for this movie if you look at their Filmography, what they're most known for. I did. Yeah. It's all, all of them. It's 2001. Yeah. Yeah. And before we move on, got to go ahead and anoint, uh, Dolia as my MVP of the film, most valuable performance. Uh, he, he's calm and poised and collected much in the way you need an astronaut to be kind of reminds me of Brad Pitt's, uh, conjured up some of that in Ad Astra here lately. Uh, that is such a pivotal characteristics for an astronaut to have. And he embodies those, uh, just the stillness, less is more, great subtle acting, a lot going on with the eyes and in his face, um, and he probably has the most close-ups of anyone in the film, so he's certainly given more spotlight than any of the other actors. Uh, you could argue uh, uh, William Sylvester is Dr. Haywood Floyd with the strong opening, but uh, I, I got to go with uh, uh, Dolia here.
0: Although with Brad in uh, Ad Astro it's more of a uh, pit little character. Anyway, (laughs) uh, (laughs) um, most of the time, I'm not going to disagree with you. I I, I think you're spot on with your MVP choices most of the time. Uh, However, you are wrong. Uh, The actor who played uh, Hal 9000, the voice of that, is absolutely the MVP. Uh, He gives the most human performance in the film. And the fact that you didn't pick uh, Douglas Rain for that role blows my mind. So I I love Kier Doya as Dave Bowman. And I Great. can
1: see, it, like, the voice performance is so strong, yeah. it's going to overshadow the actors, kind of like uh, Scarlett Joe and uh, her.
0: Uh, or even uh, Andy Serkis uh, in the, the films that he's done, not getting any type of award recognition. But in this film, you know, think about the uh, the, the association that people make with what character they think of the most. It's Hal 9000. I, that has to be MVP. So I, I, I'm sorry. I got to disagree with you on that one. Love it. Love yeah. Dave Bowman. Yeah, fair but, enough. Yeah.
1: Well, and Douglas Rain as Hail 9000, as you pointed out earlier, he was cast off his narration of Universe, which played a big influence in Kubrick's uh, approach to making this movie. Uh, and his voice does have that intelligent, sincere, and, and, and it's disarming at the same time. So, I mean, I could very well cast and. Uh, he would uh, go on to be no- nominated for a Tony Award in 1972 uh, Drama Best Supporting Actor. So, an uh, uh, esteemed actor uh, outside of this movie.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of theater work uh, for as far as voiceover, and for what I could see, Hal 9000 and the uni- in universe that uh, animated Doc was most of what he, he's done. And I can see why, you know, once you've gone down that path, anytime someone hears your voice, it's you know, Hal 9000, so... What better mm-hmm. way to, to go in a different direction than to, to the stage? So I uh, was surprised to see that.
1: And Douglas Rain also reprised his role in 2010 and 1984, uh, him and Kira Dolia being the only two actors to do so from this movie.
0: And that would leave Gary Lockwood as Frank Poole. Um, he was mainly known for television work. He actually, even after 2001, uh, he went on to do guest spots uh, and Murder, She Wrote, MacGyver. Uh, Six million dollar man, among others. So I think he was more uh, as to take a term from um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the heavy. I guess in a lot of the the TV spots. Ah, that he's-
1: actually you know you're you're forgetting his beginning here he started off as a stuntman, man so he was Cliff booth before he became adult ah, that's true okay? you're, oh you started right. as a yeah. stuntman in a stand-in before making his debut and his acting debut in 1959 and before this you mentioned all his TV credits before you didn't mention he he, he uh guest starred on Star Trek in 1966 and he was also in Splendor in the grass in 61 a big Warren Beatty movie his debut
0: you as of all the the IMDb credits to ch- go and check out. Go and check out Gary Lockwood's. He has been in so many TV shows. I mean, it's
1: it's like impossible. Forty or to name fifty them all. credits. It's insane. It's, it's insane. It's, it's, it's probably even more than that. It's nuts. And and, and a lot of this cast is TV actors. Uh, if you look, that's most of what they're. Uh, and that's intentional by Kubrick. I think he wanted to make sure that he didn't cast an actor that was going to overshadow the film or distract the audience from what was going on. He didn't visual, want some yeah. people with too many previous associations. That's, yeah, um,
0: I can see that now, yeah.
1: William Sylvester as Dr. Haywood Floyd. Uh, uh, before this, he was in You Only Live Twice, the James Bond movie, but also a big TV actor, 28 TV credits, six movies in the 50s, and then he kind of transitioned to television. Uh, after this, though, he was in Heaven Can Wait. In Mm. 1978, one of my personal favorites, a great Warren Beatty film. Uh, Guest starred on FBI, uh, Six Million Dollar Man also, and uh, Bonanza.
0: Yeah, which uh, it feels like one of those shows that ran for so long, everybody was probably in Bonanza at some point. (laughs) Honorable mention,
1: uh, not a big uh, ensemble by any means, but Frank Miller as Mission Control. He was a real NASA mission controller, and he was so nervous when he was doing his voiceover recordings for the part. Uh, he was tapping his foot, and it was running the recording. So quick story here. Kubert slid a towel under his foot and said, tap away. He was, he, was so, he was terrified. <laughs> he was really yeah. nervous.
0: Moving on to Stats and Accolades of 2001, A Space Odyssey a release date. It's a little questionable. I'll get to that in a moment. April 3rd, 1968, on a budget of $12 million. Opening weekend, there's not really any data to track, and the reason for that is because it was more of a quote-unquote roadshow release. Uh, it's uh, It came out in uh, New York City and then Los Angeles, Boston, Chicago, Denver. And for the first few stops, there was a different cut of the film each time. Like Kubrick would add things, take them away, mm-hmm. uh, depending on – Like because you mentioned he was still editing the film up, up until its release. Well, he wasn't really done with it until after uh, – even after it came out. Uh, so I think by the time it got to Boston, Chicago, his third or fourth stop – It did kind of, you know, settle in at the the version that we know now.
1: When it was all said and done, Kubrick cut about 18 minutes uh, from after the film. And and a lot of it was dialogue. Right. Or as they call it in Hollywood, the, quote, storytelling scenes. (laughs) Right. Which probably had something to do with why it wasn't received so well. I mean, Rock Hudson famously got up and walked out. Like, what the fuck is this? And, And there were people walking out at intermissions when it first
0: premiered. Well, you know, yeah, especially the, you know, how very little dialogue it is and how much it changed. I I get that. Uh, However, domestically it would go on to pull in 60.5 million. Uh, Mm. So uh, this is one that the audiences uh, did, you know, really latch onto.
1: Yeah. And that's why the film ended up staying in theater studios. were going to pull it. And then theater owners were like, no, no, no. People are coming back. You could tell the word of mouth was the film was gaining traction and and really getting to, to have some, some legs with, uh, with moviegoers.
0: Uh, worldwide it did go it's made 68.9 million now that's not just on its first run those numbers that i gave you that is through nine total releases that have gone on between 1968 uh, and and to date five of those nine releases were domestic in the u.s with the last one being in 2018 the 50-year anniversary re-release was in 70 millimeter worn like you, you would have loved to have seen that. And that kind of restoration for that, it made a one week run that was overseen by none other than Christopher Nolan uh, to bring that back in the seven seventy 70 millimeter format.
1: Yeah. He took the new prints to cans in 2018 and it had a limited, uh, uh run in, uh, theaters in 70 millimeters. So uh, I really wish I would have seen that though. Um, and their box office rank, uh, Box Office Mojo didn't start tracking it until 1977, so we don't quite know. A lot of the numbers are, like you said, uh, up for debate. Whether it's the, the day it came out, the final figures, because of the so many releases, uh, or even the runtime. You know, uh, there's various runtimes reported for this movie. Uh, you got uh, two hours and 29 minutes, 149 minutes. Uh, it was originally over 160, but it settled at 142. That's 142 minutes is considered quote the official runtime now.
0: Well, again, it was the different cuts early on. What do you use? Now, I think that that's that you know that's a trend for the midseason classics we do. Like la- our last year midseason classic when we did Wizard of Oz. I mean, there was no very little box office data to garner from from then.
1: Pff, fucking thirty nine. There was yeah. We <laughs> are you kidding me? I had to go. I had to flip through some stone tablets to get some <laughs> of the information. The rating of the film G. Are you kidding me? Kind of surprising. Right? Yeah. Uh, uh, the language, no F-bombs, okay? Four hells, two dams. Uh, the body count, eight. Four astronauts, two man apes, a taper, one sentient artificial intelligence. Uh, five murders, a lot for a G movie.
0: Yeah, it would not be G if it came out today, but back then there were only, I think, like two PG-13, ladies.
1: man. Yeah. Well, it we only had G right? and R, right? G and R. The yeah. PAA hadn't uh, formed uh, quite uh, those other uh, ratings quite yet. Uh, Home media: the film was released on VHS in 1980, Laserdisc in '89. Uh, Warner Brothers secured the rights uh, from MGM in 2011, and it was released on Blu-ray in 2018. Nowadays, you can find it currently streaming on HBO Max. Scores of the film, Metacritic 84, Rotten Tomatoes 93%, IMDb 8.3 out of 10, and it is currently ranked 90th on IMDb's top 250 movies of all time.
0: And to me, it should be higher, but that is a very subjective list, um, so take that with a grain of salt, but it's a mm. all-time classic, hands down.
1: But uh, as we mentioned, the reception with audiences initially wasn't so great, and this did have a polarizing uh, uh, opinions amongst critics. Uh, Ebert praised it uh, right out of the gate, but Andrew Sarris bashed it quite famously. And then he wrote a retroactive review later and cr- ended up praising the film. But Pauline Cale wasn't a fan either. As she said, quote, it was a monumentally unimaginative movie.
0: Uh, unimaginative? <laughs> <laughs> hey, Pauline Kael,
1: I mean, she's the Andrew Sarris Pauline Kael and Roger Ebert. I mean, that's like the Mount Rushmore of, of film critics, but uh, it's kind of interesting to see how they all had differing opinions. Uh, but this was just a different movie. We hadn't seen anything like this before. Uh, awards of the film, uh, one Oscar win for best visual effects. Yeah, of course. I believe yeah. it was a special award uh, that they gave out that year. They didn't have that category in uh, three nominations, Best Director, Best Screenplay, and Best Art Direction. Wow. No Best Picture. Shocking.
0: Well, again, Shocking. You know, it's, it was too far ahead of its time.
1: Three BAFTA wins, Art Direction, DP, uh, Cinematography, uh, and Soundtrack. Two nominations, Best Film, and another 12 wins and five nominations. It also won a Hugo Award.
0: Uh, a Best Soundtrack, you say, <laughs> Alex North was like, damn you, Kubrick. <laughs> Damn you all to hell uh, Music of the year At the 11th Grammy Awards 11th Grammys If that kind of dates the oh, shit <laughs> The record of the year Mrs. Robinson By Simon and Garfunkel uh, That song that stood The test of time What an, an awesome Awesome jam And then the Billboard Hot 100 Year End For 1968 Hey Jude By the Beatles
1: Fucking two, like, great. I know,
0: man. Music was a good year for music, let me tell you. Uh, Wow. Happy the Beatles get to make an appearance uh, on the Replay Value uh, podcast.
1: Movies of the year, uh, no box office ranking. Some of the most popular titles, The Graduate, uh, Valley of the Dolls, uh, Bonnie and Clyde, The Odd Couple, Rosemary's Baby, and Planet of the Apes.
0: Wow. Some great films, man. Good year for music and movies, man.
1: Oscar Best Picture winner, Oliver. And the Razzies weren't formed until 1981, so no worst picture to report for uh, for 68. TV of the year, uh, no Nielsen ratings, but what was popular was uh, Gomer Pyle, USMC, Bonanza, Gunsmoke. Bonanza. There you go.
0: Yeah. Gunsmoke. Oh, Beverly
1: Hillbillies. Nice. Yeah. And Bewitched. Nice. Emmy Best Comedy Series winner, Get Smart, on NBC. It was the first of their 2 peaks Emmy Best Drama Series winner, Mission Impossible on CBS, the second of a two-peat. Prices of the year, 1968, gas was $0.34 a gallon, a movie ticket was $1.22, the average rent was $130, the average price of a new car was $2,322, and the average price of a new house, $14,000. $950, all on an average minimum wage of $1.60 per hour.
0: Woo-wee, man, you could pay for college with a summer job back then.
1: Events of the year, uh, some big historical events. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. is assassinated, and Senator Robert Kennedy is assassinated. Uh, The Zodiac Killer commits his first murder. NASA launches Apollo 7 mission. It's the first manned Apollo mission. The Beatles release White, their White album. The 911 phone service is launched in the United States. First ATMs and the Big Mac goes on sale.
0: That is crazy. 911. This is one of those things you feel like always existed and it's been out since '68. Man, that's, that's nuts.
1: That's the think our grandparents were alive when there wasn't a 911 system. Uh, you just open your
0: morning. window, help, help.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'm down. I can't get up. Uh, Born in 1968, Will Smith, Naomi Watts, Celine Dion, and Jerry Yang.
0: Let's talk about our best scenes and lines from 2001 A Space Odyssey. Feel like scenes will be pretty heavy. Lines? Eh, Not so much. (laughs) Uh, But let's start things off with your runner-up for best scene, Warren.
1: Not a very quotable film. Uh, one of the least quotable will probably ever do. Uh, there is no dialogue in the first 25 minutes or the last 23 minutes of the but movie. But
0: again, it's by design from Kubrick. So I did want to say that that's the re, you know, for not being very quotable anyway.
1: Also worth mentioning when we talk about see, the only MGM movie not to f- feature Leo the Lion.
0: Yeah, I did notice that. Like the logo that they used, that had to have been a choice yeah. by Kubrick to do that. Yeah, yeah it was.
1: Because the the opening is so captivating. You don't want that to distract from it. You want that silence leading into it. Uh, As I said before, the movie is a visual symphony. Uh, It's it's, um, a a marriage of classical music and just some artistic, uh, uh, beautiful shots uh, of man in space. Uh, But my runner-up best scene... It's during the Dawn of the Apes sequence early in the film, but it's the scene where we see the weaponization of the bone.
0: Really? Okay, I like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You kind of see him putting it together.
1: He sees the bone there, he picks it up, he starts fucking around with it and figuring out what he can do, and then he applies it. And it's kind of cool to see the the evolution of him figuring out and ultimately the evolution of humanity uh, in that moment
0: yeah i mean really they cubert takes his time to sell the idiocy of the early human i that's what you want to call oh, it shit
1: man that dawn of <laughs> apes is a lot longer than i remember yeah yeah
0: and so you get to see the i guess the first tool in a sense and it's a weapon but yeah i, I like that as far as like the launching point of technology in a, in, a, in a very rudimentary sense and plus you have the great score the music element underneath you know, the
1: crescendo it. the music yeah 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 i
0: like that um Went a little bit later in the, the technology chain of events for my runner up and it is the scene in which Dave and Frank uh, get in the pod and they kind of, you know, they, they see how making a mistake they They're kind of questioning it. And Frank is like, Oh, you know, let me, let me run this by you here. I gotta, I gotta, you know, let's check this out. Uh, and like you get the sense that, you know, that something's, uh, they, they trying to get away from how, And they go in the pod, and it shows that from Hal's perspective in the reading of the lips, that scene where Hal figures out what's going on. Uh, That's got to be my runner-up.
2: There isn't a single aspect of ship operations that's not under his control. If he were proven to be malfunctioning, I wouldn't see how he'd have any choice but disconnection. I'm afraid I agree with you. There'd be nothing else to do. It'd be tricky. Yeah. We'd have to cut his higher brain functions without disturbing the purely automatic and regulatory systems. And we'd have to work out the transfer procedures of continuing the mission under ground-based computer control. Yeah, well, that's far safer than allowing Hal to continue running things.
1: Oh, yeah, that is so good. Uh, you don't quite know what Hal's going to do, and and you're just hanging on every second. The suspense is really building uh, in that part of the movie.
0: Well, I mean, you kind of do, you, you don't know how Hal's going to, where he's going to take it from there. You know what he's doing. He's reading, reading the, the lips it's just like, and like, why would they get in the pod and turn it around where he could see them? I mean, it was already facing the direction where he couldn't. I mean, come on. Uh, I mean, I, I did like that. They, um, you know, the, the way that they set it up though, as far as like trying to trick the smartest AI in the world, it fails, but you know, you, you got to admire, it. but yeah, that's why I think maybe
1: a- they turned it around to make him think they were running the test. They said they were doing to help kind of sell the procedures. Maybe, maybe,
0: Maybe, yeah. Um, What was your winner?
1: My winner, and it's the most captivating and the most memorable sequence of the film, is when Dr. Bowman kills and disconnects HAL
0: 9000. That is also my winner for best scene. What? Did we just become best friends? Yep. Look, Dave.
2: I can see you're really upset about this. I honestly think you ought to sit down calmly, take a stress pill, and think things over. I know I've made some very poor decisions recently, but I can give you my complete assurance that my work will be back to normal.
1: Yeah, the suspense has been building, and... how he has you hanging on with just hearing Doctor Bowman's breathing. It's you're just Bowman's not speaking, and you have Hal doesn't ultimately let him in discovery, but Bowman gets in anyway. But then Hal really starts to try to converse with him, and you kind of see the the pleading of Hal, and, and it it it's the most iconic sequence in the film. Anybody thinks of two thousand one, you think of that sequence.
0: Yeah, and just that it it. it flips the script in a sense that you know as far as the, the thought process, the mentality of Dave, he is almost robotic in what he's doing. He's very calculated. He's like I'm going here I'm going to the main uh, interface the, the the main frame of Hal I'm gonna take these screws off I'm gonna I'm gonna pull these these uh, boards out or whatever And so he is very robotic whereas as human as he could be, Hal is pleading for his life.
1: Well, after to be fair, after Poole gets killed, uh, Bowman doesn't give a shit. Uh, oh no, he you know, right, right right rightfully yeah, so
0: but I'm yeah, just saying yeah. in that moment he, he is just as robotic about taking out HAL as HAL was robotic in taking yeah. out Yeah.
1: HAL's more human uh, than Dr. Bowman in that moment and Dr. Bowman is more mechanical than HAL in that moment. Right, so exactly, kind of that, that's what I'm saying. Rever- yes. Role reversal because Kubrick he makes a point to humanize HAL. Uh you, you, you know, when he's disabling the logic center and you see him kind of telling, he talks about the, when he was created, which is essentially his birthday, uh, you know, when he was born and, and, and in a way it does uh, make him seem like a, a person.
0: But the great thing about it, though, is that, you know, in, normally you would feel for how and I feel with a lesser director, a different director, I should say, they would try to humanize him so much that you would almost empathize with how and that you would feel sorry that he was dying. But like. You never get that in this movie. You're. It's like yes, he deserves it. So he's human enough to where you can see the influence of the humanity, but not so much where you relate to it. You you're on Dave Bowman's side, hundred mm. percent. Mm.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, how could we not pick that? It that 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 is the winner. That's clearly the the best scene of the film. Yeah,
0: uh, I did have a couple honorable mentions. Um, one is it's it's very visual, and it's whenever you see. Bowman in the pod and Whenever the shots where you get the reflections off of his helmet. That's the just,
1: Stargate sequence.
0: Well, I mean, yes and no. It's not even before that. It's just when you see the lights of the pod in, in, in the panels, not when he's like tripping out going through the acid sequence or whatnot. Not necessarily. Oh, you're talking
1: that. about the way the lights are positioned around the panel. So when it shoots him in the astronaut helmet, the lights are symmetrical around his face.
0: Yeah. And like they're horizontal. It just, it's, I love that. I mean, there's just so many great visual. Uh, so that's elements. more of a
1: shot, right? A honorable mention there's, shot. Yeah.
0: Honorable mention shot. Yeah. Which you have to include
1: here. I got a moment to shot since you're you're mentioning yours is uh, the match cut where we get the uh, the bone being thrown up in the air and it's probably the greatest time jump in cinema history <laughs> is it <laughs> the cuts biggest right to jump, the spaceship yeah. in space and we get the uh, the primitive weapon that man apes use and then our modern day weapon uh, with the spaceship uh, there in space. And originally the script it was supposed to be a satellite armed with nuclear warheads. So to demonstrate the modern weapon of today.
0: I, I like that. I, I did have another visual one. And it's um, where you see, um, I think it's at this point in the movie, it's pool that's running through the centrifuge. And he's like jogging and punching. Uh, it may, may have been Bowman. Um, you kind of see him from the back and he's like, it shows the circular kind of running as he's going through the, the Ferris wheel set. Uh, I really love that, that shot.
1: And you got the great song blue Danube" playing.
0: Yeah. And actually that was the, my last honorable mention is um, whenever you um, see or where you first hear Blue Danube when the when it's docking, and you you got that just light, airy, uh, classical music that's playing. Uh, I, I love that. You just it, it, it's juxtaposed against you know the serious situation of a huge ship docking at, at, a, at a base. But uh, it just it's almost like a dance that it's doing. I mean,
1: before we move on, I got to mention the Blue Danube song is played by NASA when astronauts are in space to wake them up every day.
0: Oh, shit. I did not know that. That's awesome. Wow. Didn't, that's pretty cool.
1: Uh, got a couple honorable mentions here. Uh, first honorable mention, and I thought you were saying it earlier, is a Stargate sequence. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, yeah, I should have included it.
1: Yeah. Oh, wow. So cool and groundbreaking. And uh, there's a lot of uh, people have said that, you know, back in the 60s when people are eating acid and tripping that they would go to the theater just to see that sequence <laughs> you don't I mean, need to take that's... acid
0: to to trip off of that sequence it's you know especially in a theater good lord
1: and Kubrick said it would take 13 years to accomplish that visual uh, look uh so he hired 12 people and they each worked on it for a year so they got 12 <laughs> years of uh, of work uh to to, to accomplish that
0: that's uh, some good math
1: there wow they used a lot of uh, phenomena around the world, whether it's the northern lights and, and different pictures to, to combine all those colors and give it uh, a universal, natural, uh, otherworldly feel all at the same time. So very, very cool shit.
0: Again, all of this, these effects done in camera. No post-production yeah. effects used to create that.
1: Last honorable mention is the appearance of the monolith. You see him touching it at first, uh, you know, in, in, the man apes and in, and in, in, in almost trepidatiously touching it, like they're kind of scared. And then you see him just almost being like magnetically drawn to it, and eventually they're just cradling this monolith and, uh, from what we can tell, gathering intelligence and information that ultimately leads to a, a drastic evolution of humanity. But uh, very very cool, and you're and it's one of those situations where you don't quite know what's going on, but you're in good hands.
0: Yeah, um, and I forgot about this. Um, it made me think of. I did have one other honorable mention, and it's the second time you see the monolith on the moon, and like the sinister nature of it. But man, I Fuck, love the way that yeah. they, I love the way they shot the astronauts being on the moon and the approach of it. It just man, that's a, so a dark, dark, really cool scene. And then you know it ends with them touching it and the, with the, the signal going off, which leads to the expedition to Jupiter eighteen years later. Uh, or obviously 18, 18 months, months later, 18 months later, excuse me, <laughs> Two, which three, there's months. debates
1: about when, well, 2001, you got 18 months later. When is it 2001? It's 2001 during the, uh, the Odyssey, uh, 18 months later. Discovery, so this yeah. is probably, yeah, this is around 1999, uh, right. Leading into 2000.
0: Correct. Yes, absolutely. Um, so, uh, yeah, I had a, any, any the scene with the monolith, uh, deserves at least an honorable mention. So. Um, all right, moving on to our best lines. Uh, once you pick things up with your runner-up for best line,
1: my runner-up is uh, "Just what do you think you're doing, Dave?"
0: I, I had that as an honorable mention. Yeah,
1: and it's the first time that once Bowman gets back in the ship, that Hal tries to converse with him. After he said, "I don't see any point in this conversation continuing." Once he's when he's outside and he thinks he's gotten rid of, he's disposed of Bowman. He doesn't have to worry about him. Mm-hmm. Well, once Bowman finds a way in. That's the first thing he says to him.
0: Yeah, Uh, and a lot of my you know winners and uh, you know from best line and runner up honorable mentions they all kind of circulate around that scene.
1: The the scene, yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: it really is. And 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 mine's near the end when Hal uh, talks about his birthday, essentially, and uh, his uh, creator or instructor asks him to sing Daisy, and he asks Dave if he'd like to sing it for for him. And, you know, Dave obliges and he sings the song. Uh, just the way that that's cut in and just, you know, you know All it's right. the end. Uh, had, had to include that as a runner-up.
1: One of the first IBM computers sung the song Daisy, which is where they got that from. Ah,
0: okay. I, I was wondering. I, I felt like it had to have some real Yeah, and connection. Hal's
1: name, H-A-L-I-B-M. There, uh, that's the connection. Yeah, that's where it comes yeah, from.
0: Yeah, of course. Yeah, they're uh, one letter off, H to I, A to B. Yeah. LDM, yeah. Makes sense, yeah. It's right there. Uh, And then uh, the winner, which if we don't match up on the winner, Warren, I'm flying to L.A. and beating your ass. So what was your winner?
2: Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I
0: can't do that.
1: Yeah, you got to have that as a yeah, winner, of course. Yeah, you got to It's more of an exchange. I mean, it's definitely Bowman saying the line, but the follow up is just, oh, it hits you in the gut. As, and it fucking does Bowman. Well, the follow up
0: is like, my winner. Was, was the open the pod bay doors your winner or was the follow up or is the whole exchange?
1: Open the pod bay doors. That's the most iconic line from the movie. Yeah, I have to no, pick that. I mean, no. I mean, I mean the fucking oh my uh,
0: God, I'm booking the next flight to LA and I'm beating your ass. No, the most iconic line is, I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. What are you talking about? Come on.
1: Uh, Pod Bay Doors, man. I'm going with that one. That's my winner. <laughs> oh my and, uh, th- so we didn't match up. I thought we did. Well, you know the old expression. Did we just become best friends? Nope. Oh, Lord. And, you know, the Pod Bay Doors, uh, Steve Jobs' iPod came from that phrase.
0: iPod. Okay. That, of course. Yeah. Makes sense. But no. Jeez, oh, Louise. You're just anti-How, man. You didn't have him as the MVP. You didn't want nah, to use his yeah. line as the winner. Gee.
1: Ah. Fuck him, man.
0: Uh, <laughs> that's true. That's T-1000. Fair. Uh, The only honorable mention that I had was uh, when, uh, you know, after the just what do you think you're doing, Dave, Uh, Hal says,
2: Stop Dave. Will you stop Dave? Stop
1: Dave. I'm afraid. The closest thing to him begging, yeah. Yeah,
0: just the robotic, the way he keeps saying the stop and and, and the varied but robotic way.
1: I almost feel uh, like maybe Star Wars or Lucas borrowed from this. It's when Dr. Poole says to Bowman,
2: I've got a bad feeling about him.
0: Yeah.
1: Star Wars there, uh, i got a bad feeling about this. And and to
0: say that George Lucas, nine years later, wouldn't have been influenced at all by Kubrick. Oh, he absolutely fucking was.
1: yeah, absolutely. Absolutely.
0: So when you hear that, yeah, and the fact that it's made a, you know, its appearance in every Star Wars film, you have to raise an eyebrow and be like, that's an homage to 2001.
1: It's got to be, or it's a hell of a coincidence. Yeah, not a lot of Audible mentions. That was my only one.
0: Yeah, again, the visual film, you know, that, that was the, by design. So um, the, 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 the dialogue that's there is great, but there's not a lot of it. Moving on to Judge Bob's recasting court, where Warren and I recast the film with today's stars. All rise for the Honorable Judge Bob
3: presiding. Gentlemen, you may be seated. Recasting court is now in session. Counselors, I look forward to hearing your arguments. First on the docket today is for the character of Haywood Floyd. We're going to hear an argument for Matthew Reese and Benedict Cumberbatch. I'd like to hear an argument for Benedict Cumberbatch to start things off.
0: Well, when you think of the character of Haywood Floyd, uh, you know... Going into the movie, you feel like he's going to be a more of a of a main character. So you you almost want an actor that can bring that type of feel to it, but also one that has the uh, prestige. The uh, I guess the um, the 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 type of person that would stand up in front of a group of scientists and be in the know. Like even when he sits down with the 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 group of Russians and like he's in like a top secret type of level. Uh, but at the same time, he has the warmth of a family man that can talk on the screen to his daughter. So I just felt like Benedict Cumberbatch, perfect fit for the role. But at the the same time though, you you expect to be kind of a, he kind of feels like a main character, even though he's not, and he could carry it uh, easily.
1: Hmm. And Warren with Matthew Reese. Matthew Reese, the movie, okay, this character is the most important scientist. That's why he's sent to the moon. And the movie opens with this character. So it's pivotal that you get the casting right because the audience is going to be introduced to this movie, the tone of the movie, really getting invested in what's happening based on the performance of this actor. So it's if you don't get this right, people aren't going to be riding the journey of the film to even get to uh, to, to the discovery and to eventually to the mission of Jupiter. So Matthew Reese, f- he would be perfect in, in, in carrying the load early on in the film and getting the audience
0: invested. I do like Matthew. Is it Reese or Rise? I, I never say his name right. He's from Yeah, Reese, okay. From from the Americans, he's in, uh, I think, a new show on HBO, Perry Mason. I I really do love that choice, but when I just don't feel like, you you know, your thinking is right, Warren, as far as making that connection, and I feel, you know, Matthew Reese, great, but it would, I don't think he's the right for this particular role in the way that Benedict Cumberbatch would be to hook in the audience early on.
1: I mean, Benedict Cumberbatch, I didn't think of him. He's going in a different direction. I mean, they're, they're... they're not cut from the same cloth at all. I mean, it, it's, they would both do a good job and in a different way. I think Benedict Cumberbatch portrays that intelligence, maybe a little bit more nonverbally. But particularly the scene where uh, that character, uh, Dr. Floyd, is speaking to his daughter on the video conference call. I, I just feel like Matthew would bring the humanity in, in all the, the spectrums of the character that would be required in just the brief time that the audience is with him.
3: Warren, I think that you made some really, really strong arguments in there, but one of the things that you mentioned specific to how this is kind of you assume to be the main character of it, I could almost see the name over the uh, the movie as far as that goes as well. I feel like your argument almost backed up Phil's casting. Benedict Cumberbatch takes this one.
1: Well, I'm surprised you would do that because this is a movie with not – there's no stars in this movie. Uh, so if Agreed. you look, at cast the TV stars, not movie stars. Benedict's a star shines... A, I mean, they're both big actors, but I just... Benedict's a bigger star, and I don't know if that's quite what is in, uh, appropriate for this this casting of the character.
3: All right, next up on the docket, we're going to hear an argument for how 9000. Joaquin Phoenix versus Sigourney Weaver. I'd like to hear the argument for Sigourney Weaver first.
1: Well, Sigourney Weaver... Uh, these are probably uh, probably the bigger names in the recasting. But I think if you're going to go big name anywhere, you would do it with the voice. Uh, and originally, the reason I went with the feminine voice is because the, H- Hale was originally supposed to have the voice of Athena. And so going with the Greek goddess of wisdom uh, that is a more appropriate to what the director's original vision and the author's original vision was of this character. So Sigourney Weaver narrated a planet earth, the American version, fucking fantastic. She's so good. She has that mother nature voice. I She crush it. And Phil, Joaquin
0: Phoenix. Wow, man, Warren doing his research with the, the, the origination of the voice of Hal. Um uh, I, I guess I was going for, um, thinking of an actor, and it was tough to to pick an Mm -hmm. actor or actress that could nail HAL 9000 in the way that uh, Douglas Rain did. Um, For one, you have to go with someone that is robotic, uh, obviously. uh, It can be an AI, believable as an AI, but also, in a a sense, is the most human element uh, of the crew. And and I would consider HAL part of the crew. Mm -hmm. And man, when I, I was... Kind of going through. Okay, what are great narrator voices? Who's narrated some good documentaries in the past? And then out of the blue, it just popped in my head: Joaquin Phoenix, not a not really known for being a narrator, but when you think about movie like Joker, uh, uh, more recently, where it's just got this, he's just has got this quiet. There's
1: no way I'm getting on Discovery if Hal has that voice. I don't trust that motherfucker from the get. I'm not using <laughs> to sleep it. I ain't doing none of that. Okay, I might even I don't try. You know he's up to some shit. Sigourney Weaver, I'm coming right in. I'm gonna curl up, take me a nap, make me some space food. I'm on board.
0: But he does have that almost disarming quality of a voice. It's very soothing, very relaxing. The fuck but as Joker, no. no, not as Joker. <laughs> no. But you know, even even as uh, Arthur uh, in the movie Joker, it's just it's not menacing right away. It's it does it is kind of subdued and inviting. But there's that underlying level of menace that's there that you would get with yeah. with Joaquin.
3: All right. So, um, uh, Warren, props to the uh, research that you did going into this. Absolutely. I had pre-circled Joaquin Phoenix and uh, statement to be made. If the voice of Hell 9000 is Joaquin Phoenix, I'm not getting anywhere near that. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> so, <laughs> you, <laughs> you, you win the argument. I'm, I've got to yeah. give it to you. So, uh, Sigourney Weaver, well That's done. That's good. I mean. Uh, tied up.
0: Well, i I thought it I was, was thinking like being the Joker, that having that the voice that he had, and that would would be helpful to my case. But Warren turned it around to be damaging to my case.
3: <laughs> <laughs> and I just I just watched the Joker, so I had Joaquin. I I'm, I was with
1: you 100 percent of the way. Phil, but uh, you
0: can I hear thought, the voice, sure, though you that was can a Warren he casting. Did, he, I mean, oh, yeah. here imagine him as oh, Hal. Yeah. It would be it would be good. So anyway, but Sigourney, yeah, I can't I can't fault you. On. Yeah,
1: I think the character is actually going to be called Athena before they change yeah. it to Hal. Yeah, that, that
0: that, I did well done.
3: Well done. So we're tied up moving into the top of the call sheet here. We're going to hear an argument for uh, Frank Poole and Pedro Pascal versus Anthony Mackey. like to hear the argument for Pedro Pascal.
0: Pedro Pascal, uh, the Mandalorian, you know, from game of Thrones. Um, you want, he, he is a venerated astronaut, but at the same time he is, he never trusts how from the get go uh, he is, you know, quick to call Dave in there to uh to, to figure out a way to take him down and so I just uh Pedro Pascal has that intelligence behind the eyes uh but also that you know distrust you can see early on um that that Frank in a way does I mean he, he you know, he lays down he gives house com- gives how commands to do do this and do that it's just someone who is feels like he's smarter than the computer um he he's very intelligent and, and, but at the same time he Hal is more like a servant to him, someone to boss around, even though he is clearly the smartest being on the crew, the, the AI. Uh, Frank never really gives him the respect. And and I just feel like Pedro, again, uh, accomplished astronaut, scientist, but one that would be ready to undercut Hal at the drop of a hat.
1: Hmm. And Warren, for Anthony Mackie? Uh, well... Anthony Mackey has made I mean the the Falcon man he has made a, a, he is so great at playing the, uh, the the a capable intelligent character who's part of the crew he's a guy you go to war with okay this actor has played a lot of characters like that and Frank Poole is that type of character if you're going to go on a you know 9 month uh, journey to to, to Jupiter uh, you're 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 going to want some capable intelligent uh, astronauts with you and, and Anthony Mackey fits the bill uh, I think Pedro Pascal, i he'd almost played Dave Bowman. He's more of a captain. Like, I, I see him more being the, the in charge.
0: See, I, I could say the same thing for Anthony Mackie. I could see him being... Yeah, you could. You know, That's the, true. And, the, and then I think that goes to a point of the two actors in the film that you could have flipped the, the roles, and I think either one of them would have would have done well in, in, in taking it on, whether it be Dave or Frank. Uh, but uh, I, I, I see where you're coming from until you get to who I picked for Dave. To be the lead, so that, that's kind of where I see it. They're almost like a pair, and I kind of looked at it that way. The chemistry of Pedro with my Dave Bowman is what uh, kind of also hinges on this recasting.
3: I think Pedro brings a mystique of like, where do I know this guy from? Um, and him being supporting role.
1: Uh, well, too TV. bad Mandalorian's yeah. got a mask, because if he didn't, people would know. know who the fuck he is. <laughs> yes, I know. <laughs> that's true. I mean, they already yeah. know who he is, yeah. but they'd really know who yeah. he is.
3: Uh, both of these, guys, your, uh, your arguments are spot on, so I have to commend you for that. But Pedro takes this one. So going into the um, final casting of the night, we have Dave Bowman. This is our, uh, our, our bonus character. So this will be worth two points here. Um, Phil, you're up two, Warren to one. And we're going to hear an argument between Michael C. Hall and Michael Fassbender. Let's hear the argument for Dexter first.
1: Michael C. Hall, okay, this character, Dave Bowman, has a lot of stillness, uh, a, a lot going on behind the eyes, and not this isn't a, a, a movie with a lot of dialogue. Um, and so, Michael C. Hall, I mean, when you think about his performance in Dexter, and how you're you're really able as an audience to be invested in what he's going through and inside his head and feel what he's feeling and thinking what he's thinking that's very much what is required of dave Bowman's character of the actor that's going to portray and perform that and, and Michael C. Hall I mean his face says a, a thousand things and uh, without saying a word and, and and he he would he would he would crush it hmm. and uh, Phil
3: Michael Fassbender. well
0: again, like like Warren said, there's not a lot of dialogue in this movie a lot of dave's Act, acting and, and great acting uh it, it it is in the original film is those close-ups of him in the pod by himself uh reacting to what he's seeing to what is going on um to and then the, and the other part of it is you know his one-on-one with with Hal and just the intensity that Fastbender would bring to it I think that uh as far as the level of acting oh my gosh I mean just Conveying that in the pod, that the facial expressions—I mean, Fassbender would nail that to a T. And, and, and I'm going to kind of use warren your argument against you here. With he's with, too big uh, of a
1: star, man. He's too big of a star. You you can't go with a big star like that. I, mean, I think you can. Not for but, this role. He would overshadow the movie. The movie is 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 not a film with stars.
0: What you kind of talked about with Joaquin Phoenix and hearing the voice of the Joker and like I don't trust him. It's just like well, you look at Michael C. Hall. I, I don't, this is a serial killer and he's an astronaut. No, nah,
1: it's a, he's cold. He can, he's played a lot of cold calculated. Here's at the end of the day, he's like Batman. Okay. He only kills the, the bad people. Okay. He's he's not a bad person. You trust. I think
0: Dexter. he's the wrong type of cold calculated and the way that Fassbender is the right type.
3: At the end of the day, I can see, uh, Michael, his face, the entire movie. I, it's a perfect casting. So Fassbender takes, oh, it. Fa- I was like, which
0: Michael <laughs>
3: casted Michaels. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> No, um, Michael Fassbender uh, takes this one. So Phil, uh, coming off top rope, yes. three to one. Well done, well, sir. Well, well you. done.
2: I am a golden god.
3: This will make, I believe, uh, a new record, gentlemen. This is five weeks uh, or five episodes running. Phil has yet to dip into the Stranger Things basket. <laughs>
0: Well, that's because I'm saving it for later in the season. I don't want to use them all up pretty early. I got, only got only get to use the same actor two well, times.
1: You're not you're not well you get the only the only place where you get to cast the star to recast the Star Child with the Stranger Things kid. <laughs> I mean, there's not a lot of room here in 2001 for uh, for the Stranger right, Things cast. Star
0: Child Millie Bobby Brown, hear me out.
3: <laughs> all right. Recasting court is adjourned.
0: All right. Fan theory time. And uh, this was a doozy. I'm going to tell you, this was, I knew I'd come across some real meaty stuff for 2001. And I was not disappointed. A lot to choose from. However, my favorite fan theory out there is uh, one that the Collative Learning Channel on YouTube is this guy named Robert uh, Auger or Ager. Uh, He has two parts to support his fan theory, talking about the meaning of the monolith. Very interesting videos. highly suggest you go check them out if you're big fan of this movie Uh, but what it boils down to is that the monolith is not necessarily a representative of alien technology it almost breaks the fourth wall in a way and that it is for the audience it is a representation of the screen on which the viewer is watching the film whoa Whoa. okay there it is yeah thanks (laughs) Uh, thanks keanu uh, but yeah, like I had to
1: wrap my mind around that. Uh, I feel like I need to get stoned to listen to this one. Uh, this is. Uh, uh, well,
0: okay. I mean, so Kubrick, again. So, so,
1: so you're going to the astro plane here. That's some pretty uh, hippie shit, man.
0: Well, Kubrick designed the monolith. It was originally a tetrahedral pyramid in the books. Uh, he stepped away from that, and whether it be for uh, photographic or you know, filming reasons or, whatever, or whether he, you know, Kubrick, the master of subtext, um, you know, Hello, the Shining, anyone. Um, whether it was by design um, to, to speak to the audience directly as a filmmaker, think about the shape and the appearance of the monolith. It is a f- rectangular, although upright, a rectangular black, you know, monolith. It would be a big pillar, essentially. Uh, much like if you were to turn it the other way, your television is. In fact, the movie opens up the first two and a half to three minutes is just a black screen which if you're looking at it as just the screen what does Mm. it look like the monolith it's getting ready Mm. to deliver the information into your brain Uh, and that's what it does that's the purpose that well there's two
1: monoliths you got the one on the moon and then you got the one floating at jupiter and the one floating at jupiter is a lot larger than the one on the uh, on the moon
0: yeah like the one you go to see when you go to the theater it's bigger than the one you got at your home you know, so it, it, it much that's an in the interesting sense, theory. Yeah, uh, so much in the sense that, like, that is the way that, uh, and, and it goes deeper than that. Like, well, you, you know, NASA was, you know, that that's that's their way of getting information. But when you step back, you realize it's just the illusion of the television screen that you're watching. It, it goes really deep into it. But what it essentially boils down to is that uh, the monolith is a representation of how you're of the screen that you're watching the film on. That is how it is advanced technology that delivers information to the audience. Mm.
1: It's, I mean, like I said, man, you went to the asteroid plane on this one. <laughs> uh, I, I've bought some of your fan theories. I, I think that one's a little uh, too out there, man. That's yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, it's, it's That one's reaching.
0: Well, you never know with Kubrick. I mean, you, you'd have to, you know, be able to read his mind to know one way or the other, but I wouldn't put it past him. It's Stanley Kubrick. Come on. He has to have the deeper meaning is is plausible to be there.
1: Mm. Okay. Okay. And we'll close out the episode discussing the legacy of 2001 A Space Odyssey. This is considered, as I said earlier, Stanley Kubrick's masterpiece, his magnum opus, widely considered one of the greatest and most influential films ever made, and certainly is the greatest science fiction movie ever made.
0: Well, greatest in the sense that it completely and utterly shifted the genre. This, I mean, sci-fi went from B-movie to esteemed cinema after this film came out.
1: I mean, this was a film generation's big bang. It was groundbreaking, and it opened the market for science fiction films. I mean, this reshaped space movies forever, Uh, and it's impacted a lot of filmmakers. I mean, Ridley Scott has famously said that he's seen it 19 times. Uh, It's a majestic masterpiece uh, quote, is what he said. Other directors uh, have have, have praised Kubrick's work in the movie, Spielberg, Lucas, Sidney Pollock, among others.
0: Christopher Nolan. Uh,
1: yeah, of course. Michael Mann. Uh, Michael Mann said, "Every image feels like a thousand years of research is behind it. It's more of an experience uh, than a drama. I mean, it's more of a potion than a movie. It's hard to uh, explain this movie or sum it all up and, and, and with a phrase. But uh, there's just all these things that are beyond human understanding, and, and this film is a remarkable achievement in, in, in tackling those topics."
0: Well, I mean, look at the films that we we get nowadays. You know, whether it be an Ad Astra, Blade Runner, Blade Runner twenty forty nine, which of course you know came later, Interstellar, Close Encounters. That I mean, pretty much every single decade afterwards were films that were inspired by two thousand one, due to filmmakers being inspired by what Kubrick did with the genre.
1: Yeah, and Lucas even said, without it, there's no Star Wars. And uh, you you had your Beatles uh, reference earlier, uh, or your Beatles connection earlier, uh, with the, the, their hit song this year, Hey Jude. John Lennon said uh, he watched 2001 every week. So he f- loved this movie.
0: Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, he probably would buy into the half-baked, uh, that's the TV screen, is the monolith fan theory, you know. <laughs> gets anywhere the Beatles were at that time. <laughs>
1: Uh, the themes of 2001 uh, the rise of machines artificial intelligence uh, the the dehumanization of progress automation the evolution of humanity uh, from bone to spaceship as we talked about with the time cut shot uh, isolation mortality time on amazement strength skill technology modernization
0: yeah, and then and that's really where you can see the inspiration come from is these little offshoots of that whether you know the rise of the machines you know Terminator you um, you know the humanity of uh, of robot of AI with the androids and alien or aliens, you know, uh, take your pick. Um, so you you it's it was able to inspire without recreating. It 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 opened up a whole new class of sci-fi that people could pull from with the theme from the themes within the film.
1: Mm. Yeah, well said. All time accolades of the movie uh, in 1991, the Library of Congress inducted into the National Film Registry. And some of the all-time list, AFI, got to start there. Number 15 on AFI's Top 100 Movies. It was number 22 in 1998, so it moved up seven spots in nine years. Uh, Number 40 on AFI's Top 100 Most Exciting Movies. Number 78 on AFI's Top 100 Quotes. Quote, open the pod bay doors, Hal. Uh, Number 13 on AFI's Top 100 Heroes and Villains how 9000 number 47 on AFI's top 100 most inspiring movies and number one on AFI's top 10 sci-fi movies of all time
0: has to be number one yeah I mean geez Louise I mean considering again what it did for the genre and I I keep we keep beating that that horse as far as you know saying that phrase of you know recreating the you know redefining the genre what have you but I mean it did. It absolutely did. Um, what I love about it, though, is that, and I love this about sci-fi in general, especially some of the older films, is that, you know, will we ever see a lightsaber? No, but there is some technology, more the ones that are rooted in realism, where some nerd, decades, generation later, is like, you know what, I'm going to figure out how to make that. You know? <laughs> and, and they do that. It's like whether it be you know Star Trek or or 2001, where they can take an element of you know, tech that seems, you know, impossible, like, you know, who, who, who would have thought that you could do a, a video call and that you see in 1968 mm. and, you know, or, yeah. or they talked about it being, uh, having to be able to, you know, Arthur C. Clark saying, we'll be able to do that on the device in your hand. It's like, I mean, here we are, you know, 50, you almost 50 years later, you know, that or over 50 years later, excuse me, that where you where you can do that. Um, so it's just like, I love the, the, that, that's the level of inspiration where it boils down to tech in real life through the mind of, of a creator like that.
1: Yeah, I mean, they were right about a lot of things, like we said, like the prediction of technology, whether it's the iPads and, and the uh, the FaceTiming or the uh, screens on the back of plane seats. But they got some stuff wrong, too. As great as this movie is, the miniaturization of computers. Uh, Hal's memory bank is huge. Uh, <laughs> yeah, He like crawls didn't inside it of it. Take into account that the, uh, you know, that would now be the, the size of our phone would carry all that RAM. Uh, so they didn't take that into account. Uh, the liquid food in space was kind of off. I mean, it seems like it's coming from an authentic place, but come to find out that it developed a a little differently than, than what they anticipated. Um, you know, they had the uniform puddings and sandwiches with different flavors. It was kind of cool. They had the pictures, but again, now we know they have, uh, you know, real food that they, they, they chewing up there. Uh,
0: whenever Whenever you were a kid, did you ever get like that quote unquote astronaut food? Like it was like almost like a treat for kids. Oh yeah, the or...
1: astronaut ice
0: cream. Or... It tasted like the... ass. It was horrible. Yeah,
1: it did. <laughs> yeah, it was like the space MREs or some shit. Yeah. Um, oh, one thing that they they did that was really cool is the rotating ship. Kind of surprised NASA didn't uh, approach it that way because if a human being is going to be in space for a long duration. It's actually not healthy for them to be in zero gravity. So the fact that the rotating ship creates gravity in space, uh, it's kind of, uh, it seems like that's the direction maybe they should have went.
0: Well, again, you know, I'm sure if it was easy, they could have, or if it was better than the solutions that they have. I mean, they do require astronauts to, you know, have certain exercise regimes to make sure their muscles don't atrophy while they're in space. So, they have a plan. It doesn't necessarily involve a a rotating Ferris wheel to, to be able to execute it, but they do take those uh, considerations into account.
1: I talked about the mastery of, of, of Kubrick earlier, but you know, one of the things he just demonstrates, and we talked about the rotating ship is the illusions. He's just a master of illusions and that's what filmmaking is. I mean, it's pictures at 24 frames a second and Kubrick took it to a whole other level with his directing in this film, his understanding of the camera the lenses and how to manipulate the frame to capture the shot that he wanted.
0: Yeah, I mean, it was the technology was groundbreaking at the time. I mean, of course, the technology has since been reinvented with blue screen, green screen, but a lot of it required them to, you know, uh, superimpose. Like, well, I'd say because everything was in camera, they would shoot one thing and then shoot something else on top of it with, with it having to match up and line up perfectly uh, so that it wouldn't, you know, it wouldn't ruin that illusion. That the picture created, um, so um, through what he did in this film, it it did inspire uh, the technology of filmmaking. Until I would say the blue screen and green screen really did re- replace it overall as a more take it over the nineties. Yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah, uh, bringing it full circle with the rest of the uh, some of the all time lists that the film made. Number two on Roger Ebert's top ten list, nineteen sixty eight. Number six on the 50 films to see before you die. Number 11 on Village Voice's 100 best films of the 20th century. Number 19 on the Motion Picture Editors Guild list, best edited films. Number 26 on Entertainment Weekly's greatest movies of all time. And the Vatican listed it as one of the top 45 movies ever made and one of its top 10 art films.
0: Wow. Uh, That's high praise. That's high praise. Because there's not many films where we talk about the Vatican ranking. No shit. I mean, that's... Yeah, I mean it's going to make its way to you know most lists, and that's why it's a you know of the front runner for a mid season classic. And while we're covering it, not only for the personal connection it has to us and uh, us growing up on it, it being passed from a, you know our, our, our dad, but also because of how it's influenced current filmmakers and film as a whole,
1: and not just influencing films. I mean, pop culture too. NASA named a Mars orbiter 2001 Mars uh, Odyssey.
0: That's right. Uh, yeah,
1: Apollo. Yeah, the Apollo thirteen call sign was Odyssey. Uh, Pink Floyd's "Dark Side of the Moon" and the Wizard of Oz connection, which you could probably explain a little bit better than me.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, that again—that's a, that's a that's a whole fan theory in and of itself. You know, that's a lot yeah,
1: more. Yeah, Fan Theory didn't include uh, some of that, how you can sync up some of their songs to watching parts of the film. Oh, yeah. Uh, particularly sure. being so visually compelling, it makes a lot of sense. Well, the the song Echoes from the album Metal can be synchronized with Jupiter and Beyond uh, Infinity, Infinity Sequence.
0: Oh, uh, actually, I didn't segment. know that. Oh, gosh.
1: Yeah, yeah. Mentioned the iPod, Pod Bay Doors connection or the uh, inspiration there. But uh, also another Apple connection is there was an Apple versus Samsung tablet case. And Samsung cited 2001 is showing they didn't come up with tablets. Uh, th- this idea has been around for a long time and helped that's true, because they're watching rule like in a, their favor.
0: Yeah, they're watching, they're eating and watching off of an, an iPad, essentially, off of a tablet. That's You're probably like, the most shit. accurate
1: thing ever. It's like they're pe- two guys are sitting there next to you so disconnected they're in their devices. I mean, that's modern day in a nutshell. It really
0: is. I mean, that's crazy. Wow do want to mention the the Arthur C. Clarke follow-up novels that happened after 2001. Uh, there was 2010, Odyssey 2, which did end up becoming a 1982 film. It was the only follow-up that was adapted into a film. Uh, Kubrick had nothing to do with it. Uh, there was, I, I called it 2060 earlier. It was actually, the, the third book was called 2061, Odyssey 3. It was released in 1987. And then 3001, the final Odyssey, was released as a book in 1997. And it, it I actually read that book. It followed Frank Poole, believe it or not. He had been freeze-dried in space after Hal disconnected him. He floated through space, and his body was found a 1,000 years later in the Kuiper belt, and he was brought back to Earth. He ends up... What? uh yeah, yeah, at this point, you know, AI has advanced so much that... Um, there is a version of Hal called Halman, and it is a mixture of Hal and Dave Bowman's uh, um, psyches, their their personalities into one. It's called Halman, and he's like friends with them in the book. It's crazy, but anyway, yeah, that was the last Whoa. book. Yeah, I know it's it's his trip. Uh, but yeah, so that's was, the three
1: thousand one, the final odyssey, right? Correct.
0: Yes, and he ends up going against like the machines, and it's it's a whole whole thing. But yeah, uh, and
1: uh, needless to say, there was a. a, a the three sequel novels, 2061, Odyssey 3, and 3001, The Final Odyssey, were not adapted into feature films.
0: This is pretty much unfilmable, at least 3001. Yeah, that's yeah.
1: great. Uh, the, the one sequel film, 2010, The Year We Make Contact, uh, Kubrick Had No Involvement. Uh, I watched this movie in preparation for the podcast. Uh, man, it's it's got some big names in it. John Lithgow, uh, Helen Mirren. Um, Roy uh, Scheider uh, Roy, is in uh, it. Uh, Roy Scheider from Jaws. Uh, yeah. Uh, he's the lead.
0: He plays um, Dr. Floyd, it, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. He plays William Sylvester's role uh, in the, the storyline. I Kind of give you the basics real quick. We don't want to deviate. To this podcast is not about 2010, but uh, it, it's uh, the storyline is uh, the United States and USSR have a joint space operation to to go find out what happened to Discovery nine years later in 2010. Uh, why they're in space traveling to uh, uh, Jupiter? Um, the U.S. Uh, and Soviet relationships uh, sour. It's during the Cold War. or I guess, Well, the movie was made during the Cold War. It's in the future. But the movie's playing on the sour sure. relationships of the yeah, United yeah, States yeah. and the Russians. While they're in the middle of the mission, the relationship's sour. So now there's a division between the American astronauts and the Russian astronauts. And there's that drama there. They finally overcome it. And at the end of the day, I'm just going to tell you the ending to 2010, Jupiter explodes. <laughs> and there are there are two suns now on Earth. There's a smaller sun where Jupiter was, and now we have our still have our sun, and the two suns is a it's like a renewed lease for us for humanity on this planet. It's the higher intelligence, God or artificial intelligence, uh, communicating to us like, don't fuck this up and, and because more or less they were showing they weren't satisfied with our tensions with each other to live in peace and that's what mm-hmm. the second son was termed it, it really deviates i think from the film and, and where the first film mystified the story it, it was better left alone i, I, I didn't really like uh, the third act of this at all uh needless to say
0: yeah it sounds not great I'm, I'm gonna be honest i'm glad you went ahead and told me and spoiled i don't even care you spoiled the ending because it sounds like but and i'll never watch it no so. one's
1: gonna watch it yeah but you know what's shocking is we as a society stop space travel. I mean, even back in '68 when the movie came out, or it's like when we hit the '80s, we just shut it down. Uh, you just—I'm sure people back in the '60s assumed in 2020 we would be fucking
0: way. Again, it's just the distances. It's manned space travel, and we still send you know uh, the probes and you know, rovers out to to discover, but it's just more so that the time that it takes to get somewhere. It's me. You know, space is big and it takes a long time to get to places. It doesn't take nine months to get to Jupiter, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> uh <laughs> uh 1501
1: connections and pop culture and other media, a lot of spoofs and parodies as you can imagine. I'll just name a few. Catch 22, The Jerk, Zoolander, Happy Feet, Weird Science, Galaxy Quest. Nice. Fucking space Balls. Yeah. Clueless. And about a dozen Simpson spoofs, <laughs> of course.
0: Homer, no, yet yeah. go. Oh, I'm gonna enjoy this. Don't take out my British yeah. charm unit. Without that, I'm nothing but a bullish American plod. Yet, ah, yeah, thanks a lot, asswipe. I could kick your butt from here to Albuquerque, you fat slam bucket. <laughs> yeah
1: and it was also referenced in Clockwork Orange Apocalypse Now Star Trek Exorcist Barry Lyndon Saturday Night Fever and Close Encounters of the Third Kind
0: do have to mention that there actually is an exhibit uh, that opened in Astoria Queens New York in uh, January of 2020 called the Museum of the Moving Image uh, and that it was actually an exhibit solely for 2001 A Space Odyssey that's how much of an influence that it has had wow. on film
1: Yeah, I want to check that out that's cool and we've talked about the meaning of this film, and I think one of the, very cool to hear uh, Stanley Kubrick himself talk about the ending of the film, which has been discussed and debated to great lengths. Uh, you know what the birth of the star child means to humanity and to the end of the film. So uh, let's let's check out Kubrick telling us all what the hell it means. <laughs>
2: I've, I've tried to avoid doing this ever since the picture came out because when you uh, when you uh, just say ideas they mm. sound uh, foolish whereas if they're dramatized uh, one feels it but i'll try i mean the idea was supposed to be that um he is uh taken in by uh, uh god-like entities uh creatures of pure uh, energy and intelligence with no shape or form mm. and um they uh put him uh in what i suppose you could describe as a human zoo mm. Uh, to study him and he spends his whole life passes from that point on in that room and he has no sense of time Um, Mm -hmm. it just seems to happen as it does in the film Mm -hmm. and um, they choose this room which is uh, a very uh, inaccurate uh, replica of uh, French architecture deliberately so inaccurate because uh, you know when had some idea what happens when he goes back. Um, it is uh, a pattern of a great deal of mythology. Mm-hmm.
1: And that was what we were trying to suggest. I see. Wow, I didn't realize uh, Superman gets, a, a maybe not a direct mention, but maybe a, a derivative or a, a, of that idea. But it's still cool to hear him say that.
0: Yeah, I think Superman, you know, back in, the, you know, meant something different back then, but it is was more saying above uh, you know, a normal human being, uh, but it was. I That's great to hear the zoo analogy that Kubrick made off of that because I, I never. I mean, you kind of think that it's just it's just more trippy than anything. But to put the connection that oh, this is by design. This is essentially a cage where he can be observed. That time pa- really has no meaning uh, for for Dave Bowman. So uh, I I appreciate Kubrick uh, giving us that little little insight.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's we've talked about how some filmmakers don't want you to know something because they don't want you to know, and I've always cited Quentin Tarantino's scripts with that, whether it's the, the scar on uh, Aldo Rain's neck or did Cliff Booth really kill his wife or did, he, or did he mean to do it or was it an accident? But, you know, this is a circumstance where the director comes out, explains it to us, and, uh, you know, he even said he avoided doing that, so interesting he finally did choose to do it. I mean, this is, what, in the 80s, so it's like 10, 15 years later. But uh, b- very cool. I apologize for the audio quality. Not the best, but given how old it is, eh, it's, uh, it's uh, best. Get over think.
0: it. <laughs> I think the message is more important.
1: And Roger Ebert of the Chicago Sun-Times summed it up best when he said, "Quote: Only a few films are transcendent and work upon our minds and imaginations like music or prayer or a vast belittling landscape. Alone among science fiction movies, 2001 is not concerned with thrilling us, but with inspiring our awe, unquote.
0: That is going to do it for this episode of Replay Value. Thank you so much for listening. Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast. And if you love what you hear, take the time to rate, review, and share with a friend. You can follow us on Twitter at Replay Value Pod. We are available on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every other Tuesday. and We'll see you then. Bye! Bye.
3: has been a Waldo Pickles production.